the, the problem we have right now within our communities is we talk about all of those things, but at the end of the day, we don't have the courage within the city management industry to actually do it. We're scared to lose our job. We're scared to be different. We're scared to take a large city. We're scared to change that and break down our larger cities into localized neighborhood driven governmental services. That really is a cultural change that has to occur from the top and and move its way down. Helping community leaders grow financially resilient, resource conscious, and people-friendly cities is the Go Cultivate podcast brought to you by Verdunity. Welcome back to another episode of Go Cultivate, the podcast for community builders. I'm your host, Kevin Shepard. Uh, today I'm chatting with Patrick Lawler and Chad Janicek, the co-founders of ZachTax, an online sales and hotel tax analysis platform for local governments. Before making the, the jump to ZachTax full-time, Patrick and Chad both worked in local government, uh, most recently as city manager in ACM for Hudson Oaks, Texas, which is a, a small community outside of uh, over near Fort Worth. Patrick and Chad, uh, share they share our passion for nudging communities towards more sustainable development and especially on the data side of using data to inform decisions. Uh, in the conversation today, we talk about what led them to create the early beta version of ZachTax while they were still working at Hudson Oaks, how the software has evolved uh, since then, um, and what their data is showing for about the impact of COVID um, and how that's impacted city finances. Uh, they're also big fans of uh, using uh, fiscally based uh, approach to planning and infrastructure. So I also asked them to elaborate a little bit on some of the policies and recommendations that that resonate with them and also some of the things that that as city leaders uh, when they were working in city government that they struggled a little more with with how do we actually implement those things so that was that was kind of a cool part of the conversation for me before we get to that discussion though, i want to do a, a quick pitch here for some of the services that that we're offering um, two in particular that were uh, two things that we're offering local governments right now uh, for a limited time, we're, we're offering our community assessments and our fiscal analysis services for a discounted cost and an accelerated timeline. First, our assessments. That's where we'll come in and provide a third-party evaluation of your existing plans, codes, some of the processes that you, maybe development review processes that you have. Um, and we'll look to identify areas of alignment and conflict. Um, along with leaving you with some recommendations for some small, easy things you can do to squeeze a little more out of these tools that you've already invested a lot of time and money uh, in developing over the past few years. A lot of times when we look at these plans and you know you have comp plans and thoroughfare plans and downtown plans and things like that, that they're done over a couple of years. And you know when you look at them individually, they all sound great. But when you look at them together, there's, there's some things that conflict and make it you know, very hard for your your staff to implement some of those key key items. Uh, at the same time, there's some areas of alignment that are kind of the low hanging fruit, very obvious things that your community really wants to make a priority, but you just haven't done yet. Um, so we'll come in, take a quick look at those, and um, it's kind of a get in, get out, third party. You know, just you know, we come in, take a look, um, and kind of give you some ways that that we see that you can make use those existing. Um, existing tools to make some progress right now. The second one is our fiscal analysis work. You've 
you've heard us talk about that a little bit in the past. Um, the fiscal analysis modeling, the presentations, the workshops, they're, they're a really good way to, to not just quantify and communicate your resource gap, um, but get into the, the conversations about what services do we keep, what, what capital projects, what CIP projects do we prioritize, um, what areas of the city do we invest in, what, what should our economic development strategy or reinvestment or redevelopment strategies be. Um, all of those things can be informed at a deeper level when you have this kind of fiscal fiscal analysis and, and related information. So, and that's something you know we're hearing over and over from cities right now going through as you're putting your budgets together, as you're figuring out how to finish the rest of this year, plan for next year, and even thinking two to five years out about what is your strategy out of the COVID situation look like. This is just uh, some really powerful information to get in front of your city leaders and your broader community. So we thought we'd, we'd throw this out. We, we've got limited time as a staff to to do these, uh, but it's it's two things that we think are just tremendously valuable and helpful for cities right now. So again, we're offering both of those right now for a, an accelerated timeline and a, a leaner, lower cost, pretty significant discount actually for the first ones that take us up on the offer. You know, we we like to say over and over here at Redunity that that our focus is to help make help cities make meaningful progress right now with the resources that you have. Both of these tools are, uh, in the grand scheme of things, they're they're relatively low cost, but they've got huge upside and return on investment. You know, in normal times, but especially now with with COVID. So, if you're interested in learning more about either of these discounts, take us and taking us up on it. I wanted to, trying to to be one of the, those ones that gets in before we. And we have to shut things down. Um, here's what you do. Uh, send an email to info at verdunity.com. And in the subject line, type COVID offer. So info at verdunity.com. And then in the subject line, put COVID offer. And we'll send you some additional information about the different options and price points for those. And again, it's kind of first come, first serve until we're, we're tapped out. So I'm excited and honored to just you know, be able to work with you guys in, in local government. We've learned so much in the, the work that we've done in the last nine years as, as a firm, but especially in the, the last two or three years with the, the resource constrained, fiscally based planning type of, of conversations that we've been in. If you want to take us up on that, if there's a way we can help you or, or provide some advice or some additional support through these times, we'd be we'd be honored and excited to help you out. So with that, that's enough of the pitchy stuff. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get on to uh, my conversation with Patrick and Chad of ZachTax. Hope you enjoy it. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Be well. Uh, and when you get out there, uh, wear your mask as much as you can. <laughs> All right. So Patrick and Chad, the ZachTax duo, welcome to the Go Cultivate podcast. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's fun to be here, man. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you guys on. We've we've gotten to know each other uh, a little bit better over the last several months and uh, wanted to have you guys on to to talk about a, a little municipal finance and development, uh, the, the intersection of, of those. So uh, why don't we jump in and get started just with you guys doing a brief introduction of who you are, your backgrounds before Zach Tax, and, and then we'll transition into the creation of Zach Tax and what you guys are doing now. Patrick, why don't you go first? Yeah, so you know, my name is Patrick Lawler. I was uh, in city management for right around 16 years. 
I started my career uh, during my undergrad at Texas A&M. I started my career at Bryan, Texas. Uh, I was a city management intern. Then I was blessed to keep a job after my internship ran out. I moved down to the development services department. I was able to do some project management work. was encouraged to attend grad school at UNT, which is where I met Chad, uh, my partner, and uh, went to UNT, worked for Denton County, uh, worked for the city of the Colony, worked for the city of Fort Worth, uh, and then uh, worked a, the bulk of my career in a small town outside of Fort Worth uh, named Hudson Oaks, uh, famously known in North Texas as the, uh, the home of North Texas's, uh, you know, few H-E-B stores, right? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the experience of working in small towns and big cities, uh, especially from a revenue standpoint, really, really changed my perspective about what we needed to do uh, in order to build sustainable communities. And really early on, Chad and I would have those conversations driving back and forth. We carpooled because we both worked at the city of Fort Worth during grad school. And so we would carpool to grad school up to UNT uh, three times a week. And so it just kind of got the juices flowing and we would chit chat in the car on the way. And, and that's kind of where, where Zach Tax started in its infancy. So just to chime in there. So you guys were going up to grad school at UNT and getting some schooling from our, our mutual friend, Lewis McLean, right? Yes. Lewis was our, he was, I made a B in his class. Chad's going to bring that up. So I'm just going to get ahead of that. Go ahead and talk <laughs> about it. Chad made an A. Uh, but yeah, Lewis, Lewis was our uh, performance management and, and analysis professor there. So we, we were able to go to UNT and, and, and get a pretty interesting education. We'd go, we'd have a class. Uh, we'd typically jump back in the truck, uh, drive back, stop at a Cheddar's, have a beer, and then debate everything we had just heard. Uh, so it was, it, was a, <laughs> you know, it was an interesting year and a half, two years of spending time. And, and I think we realized real, real quickly that we were going to be friends in the career for a long time. And uh, we kind of hatched plans that you know, ultimately we thought there were going to be a lot of changes in city government. Things were going to, you know, really transition over time. And, and we kind of wanted to be on the cutting edge of that. So I'll let Chad go into some more details about Zach and where we are with that. But Did you guys move to Hudson Oaks together? No. So I actually got there first. Uh, I was at the city of Fort Worth and I met the city manager at the time of, of Hudson Oaks, who's Robert Hanna. He's now the city manager of Abilene, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Robert kind of recruited me and a couple other folks to interview for his assistant two position. Uh, and I interviewed and, and got the job. And then Robert famously, I say famously, cause we'll tell you that story in a minute. He, uh, he left me after about six or seven months. Uh, he went, <laughs> he went to his next city, uh, which Chad can tell you the story about how he, uh, he left Chad in the city that he recruited Chad to as well. So, yeah, so <laughs> ouch, <laughs> I was working in the budget office in Fort Worth and uh, Robert gave me a call and, had me come out and he ended up bringing me out to be the assistant director for transportation public works. Um, and then, yeah, much like Patrick's experience, uh, he took off for the city of Denison after about six months and <laughs> no trial by fire, I guess. That was while Robert was the deputy city manager of Weatherford when he did that. Cause he, he took a job in Weatherford from Hudson Oaks. So then went to Denison and then Denison to Abilene. So got it. Yeah. He's a great guy. Okay. He's been fantastic in career. He actually won the mentorship award at TCMA last year. Uh, Robert, Robert's a fantastic city manager. Yep. But I spent four years in Weatherford and then uh, Patrick got promoted to city manager. His job came open and I uh, had the opportunity to apply and got selected. So um, that's how we came to actually finally, after what, 10 years, to yeah, actually work together. Yep. So, um, so talk about your roles there at, at Hudson Oaks, Patrick. You were the, you were the city manager. And then Chad, what were you doing? I was the ACM. So I, uh, I started there as an assistant too, got promoted to director of operations, then moved into an ACM role, 
and then uh, finally became uh, the city manager. And, uh, you know, we, Hudson Oaks in general is just a very, it's a very different city. They don't have a property tax. They're sales tax dependent. We talk a lot about that on our podcast as well. Um, and, and you have to be more creative. You also have to be more selective in how you develop and what you develop. You can't just put a bunch of uh, lane miles down on the ground because you've got to be able to pay for the maintenance of those lane miles. And you don't have a for sure thing from a property tax standpoint that's going to pay for that, even though most cities probably don't have a for sure thing that pays for those lane miles either. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll jump we'll... into that one. But, uh, <laughs> so that, that's kind of where I got started and when... Um, you know, we had a really, I, I would say they were conservative, but when it came to managing a city from a policy standpoint, we had a very progressive city council uh, made up of executives and really smart individuals. They understood the dichotomy between a city manager and the policy direction. Uh, you know, they, they knew they needed to tell us where the bus needed to be in five to 10 years, get out of our way and let us drive the bus. Uh, and our goal was to get to where they wanted to be. And uh, to this day, they still have that great leadership and that great management from a city council and mayor standpoint. Um, very few cities in the state have that special mix, and uh, and Hudson Oaks does. And so that that allowed us to bring Chad on to be really creative and and do some things that other cities weren't weren't able to do. Right. So you kind of you you hit it real quick and kept kept moving. But so Hudson Oaks. You didn't really touch on size or, or population, but you said you're completely sales tax there, which for those of us in Texas, that's not that's not the norm, right? We're a property tax state. So how did mm-hmm. when was that decision made that you were gonna just be hundred percent sales tax? Um, at founding. <laughs> yeah. Nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, it was it was okay. formed as a uh, sort of an offshoot from its neighbor um, out of its ETJ through a somewhat contentious legal process. Um, but the goal of the community was to avoid having a property tax, to build their own community with their own values and avoid having that, that wealth tax uh, in place. So it's been mm-hmm. from day one and it's still the number one goal on the comp plan. So then Patrick, you were just starting to get into some of the the challenges with that of when you don't have property tax for those who do, I, you know, I, I encourage cities to, to try to have that as a, it is a stable, a stable revenue source, especially with the, you know, the, the, context of the situation we're going through right now, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a city that has property tax, the, the more of your revenue, more of your general fund you can get from property tax, I think the, the better off you are, which frees up your sales tax and, and other fees to go into quality of life, you know, enhancements and other things like they were originally intended to do instead mm-hmm. of starting to use sales tax and EDC money for basic infrastructure and <laughs> some of those basic needs that we're starting to see more and more. But yep. um, I, I mean, I know both of you guys are You've been following strong towns and, and you're big into kind of the fiscal analysis of, of investments and some of that. But you guys both come at it from the management side of things of inside cities, um, you know, whereas my background at it has come from the, the consulting side of, of engineering and planning. Well, let, let, before we get to strong towns, let's let's go Zach tax. So you guys are both working together um, at the city in a city that is sales tax based. Um, and so the ability to analyze and look at sales tax data I would imagine <laughs> it was a pretty important thing to be able to do. So did you, you guys just started building your own tool to do that, right? We did. Everything that was available at the time uh, was focused around sales tax audit, um, You know, trying to help you find lost revenue, revenue that you should be getting, but you aren't. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a finder's fee that's attached to that. And 
at the end of the day, the analytics is just sort of a byproduct. You know, they have all of your sales tax data and they don't always find something for you. So they would just give you this huge, like inch thick booklet every quarter. And, you know, it doesn't tie back to your financials. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't match your fiscal years. It's, it's really difficult to glean any actionable insights from a, a report like that. So we just built a web app that ingested all that data and, you know, let us see where is your revenue actually being generated, geocoding those taxpayers on a map, organizing them by the industries that they report on their sales tax permits and just giving you a much better uh, way to view and analyze that data. And then we showed a, showed a few friends and they liked it and it just kind of <laughs> gets grew from there. Well, so so give me an example of like, what are some of the takeaways that you guys back then at, at Hudson Oaks you know, in the, the early days of, of the app, just as you were building it for your city, what, what are some of the takeaways or the kind of things that you noticed when you started to map it? Well, I think the biggest thing, yeah, I mean, well, geospatially is where we made our money, how we made our money, where the hotspots, you know, that uh, yeah. sales were being made. But I think as we, what, what made us better at Hudson Oaks is as we gained more cities and more data we were able to start to to start to teach some of our other cities and learn from that data. Uh, so we really spent the last probably five or six years of our time in Hudson Oaks diversifying our sales tax base, uh, and we learned you know what specific users we should diversify with, and you know what type of deals we should be going after, and and you know really that that was very different than you know, what you would typically see cities go after and recruit. You know, cities are really after power centers. And in Hudson Oaks, we started focusing on things that you couldn't buy online. That was the big, that was like the big thing we talked about at the office all the time. Uh, can you buy it online? Is it sustainable at the end of the day? And so we started looking at things like John Deere dealerships and, you know, like a boat and UTV retailers. And there were some other things that we, we looked at you know, recruiting large landscaping companies uh, to the city. We, we recruited a large scale uh, internet ser- service provider to locate their corporate headquarters there. Those were all things that kind of diversified our sales tax base. And that whole conversation really came out of us learning from building Zach. Uh, and now we get to teach that to, you know, the 125 plus cities that we service now. I'm not even sure what our number is right now. Chad, what are we at? Oh, we're at 123 cities and local governments. Okay. So let's talk about Zach Tax. You guys build an app at the city. You're getting some insightful information out of it. Um, you're using that to inform your decisions. Um, and you decide that this is growing with your peers. There's more interest and you're going to ditch the city gig and, and go Zach Tax full time, right? It took a little while. I left about a year ago. <laughs> um, Patrick stayed on for another, I think, 11 months after I left. And Part of that was for continuity for our employer, you know, for the city. We didn't want to leave them high and dry with both of us uh, heading out at the same time. But um, <laughs> it, it was we're, actually we're leaving you and we're taking yeah. our app with us. <laughs> <laughs> Things had a way of working out, I think, the right way. We had we did a lot of stuff in Hudson Oaks that um, had kind of just wrapped up. You know, we kind of finished a bunch of developments. They all kind of ended at the same time. So it, it was a, also a good chance for the city to to kind of get some fresh leadership. Uh, we spent the last, I think, 18 months kind of transitioning the staff so that it would be uh, in, a, in a better position for long-term succession whenever sure. I left and then eventually when Patrick left. Um, but 
it, it really started to take off maybe three and a half years ago. We brought someone on to actually do sales for us. Um, and that, that allowed us to have a little bit of our time back, you know, in the evenings. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it was bootstrapped as could be. I mean, when we started this, we'd work, you know, eight to five at the city, sometimes, you know, eight to eight, depending if we had a meeting that night or not. And, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. When, when did you when did you get evening hours when you're working for a city? Cause... Well, we didn't have kids at the time. so that was <laughs> Yeah, helpful. we didn't have kids. That was that was helpful. Then when we had kids, it started to get really tough. Uh, <laughs> and, and then when we really started growing with clients, it was uh, it, it got even harder. There were a lot of when when Gmail started to allow you to delay the send of your email. That was really beneficial because I could send an email at two o'clock in the morning and it now actually not hits a client till like eight thirty. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Look right. like, I didn't look like a crazy sending a three o'clock in the morning email. So yeah. yeah. So so I, I think ultimately, you know, we were we we just really bootstrapped it. We we didn't. We always expected we would start a company. I don't think we expected it would be Zach. You know, we thought it would be more of like a general consulting side company. Um, and then we ended up starting Zach, and it it's just uh, it's just kind of taken off, and and it's created its own kind of culture with it as well, which has been really phenomenal to be a part of. So I know when we first got connected and we're talking, I, I heard the pitch from you guys on, on what Zach Tax is. But for those who don't know Zach Tax and what you guys do, what's the pitch? Well, since, since Patrick is the Steve Jobs of the duo, why don't you, why don't you take the elevator pitch? <laughs> he doesn't love that. He's sell wow. a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. That, that's correct. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Waz. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we ZachTax is a tool for cities to analyze their revenue to make decisions. We are putting a tool in front of them that provides them the dashboard and the know-how so that they can make educated decisions. You know, there are some byproducts that have come out of it, like we've built an audit platform and things like that that have been extremely beneficial to our cities, especially those cities that want to get away from, um, you know, a finder's fee model from other consultants. Uh, but the reality is, is that we looked at this purely from the standpoint of what does a finance director want to see? What does a city manager want to see? And what does an EDC director want to see? Right. Mm-hmm. And now we're moving into what does the planner want to see? You know, kind of talking to you guys and partnerships and things like that, um, yep. you know, and, and really starting to dive into strong towns and incremental development. You start to see in Zach now, um, you know, things like revenue per acre. That's become very important in, in Zach because, it's an important measure that cities should be looking at. Um, and, and so our overall goal is to provide them an analytics toolbox that allows them to make decisions. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but right now you're still on the sales tax side, right? So we are currently, uh, we're in sales tax, we're in mixed beverage tax, we are in statewide hotel tax, and we just launched a short-term rental. Uh, so we allow cities to do that, which most cities don't get paid at all for short-term rental. So there's a there's a lot right. of ability for cities to look at that data. Uh, and we're integrating property tax as well, uh, but we're still a little ways off from finishing up the property tax module. So, okay, so let's talk Strong Towns. How did, how did you guys first hear about them? I, I guess I should preface this by saying that there's a lot of sort of symbiosis between our mentality beforehand. And I think Chuck really just kind of put into words a lot of the things and gave us the the tools to make the case. Um, yep. you know, we had been arguing for, for a little bit more density, a little bit more, um, sustainable development in our town, which was difficult, not because people didn't want to hear it, but because it was a relatively rural town of 2,300, you know, 20 minutes West of Fort Worth, Texas. 
And so sometimes those cases are just a little bit more difficult to make. But I actually first came across it because my brother, who has nothing to do with city management, uh, he sent me a podcast <laughs> that, uh, that they released about the transportation bills that were being considered. And about 10 minutes into that podcast, I was just hooked. I was like, this is what yeah. I've been looking for. Yep. How about you, Patrick? So, uh, you know, for me, it was, uh, I think Chad was probably the first one who brought it to my attention. And so I did the same thing, started listening to the podcast and understanding exactly what their point of view was. Uh, I, I was always a proponent. I had always said for a long time that cities actually can be too big. Um, and, you know, we, and that was just my experience of being in Fort Worth and, and then going to a small town. And the direct connection that you have with your residents and the understanding of what small incremental development can do compared to large scale multi-million dollar projects. And, and so, I, you know, we had kind of started really early in those conversations at, at Hudson Oaks. And, and when I got to Hudson Oaks in 2007, you know, the city basically said, we, we will not allow any type of high density development, no multifamily, no townhomes. You know, no, everything was, we'll never do a 60 or 70 foot lot. Everything's got to be three quarter acre, but they were really oh. smart people. Yeah. Right. I mean, they were very intelligent. I mean, uh, folks and a very intelligent city council. And so, you know, we didn't push an agenda at all. Uh, we just allowed the community come in and, and have conversations and talk about, uh, you know, what type of development you could develop. It doesn't, you know, just because you do a multifamily complex, it doesn't mean it's cheap. Right. There are things that you can do from a community uh, perspective to benefit that. So we were having those conversations really early to where in uh, right around 2011, the community kind of gave the blessing for, okay, we'll allow some higher density development to occur under these parameters. Uh, and so we went into what I would consider um, some, some more very pointed uh, PD developments, plan development districts for those folks that don't work in planning. And we started to really focus on, okay, if we're going to allow this, what do we want to allow? And instead of allowing developers to come to our table, we kind of took what our community was willing to do and we went to sit down with the developers. And we said, this is where we want to go. And this is how we diversify our housing stock in Hudson Oaks uh, and also our, our retail and, and commercial uh, areas as well. Will you guys do it with us? And, and Chad and I beat our head against the wall for a solid probably three years before we were actually able to find developers that would do that. And I think that's what's hard in city government is, is to do that. And, and during this whole time, Strong Towns is coming up and it's, it's really starting to get, you know, seasoning and flavorful now. Um, but there is a, there's a group of managers out there. Uh, I'm not going to name names, uh, but there's a group of managers out there that are uh, very passionate about this. I mean, talking about building these sustainable communities that want to get away from the glory finding that has occurred within cities you know, the big ticket projects right. that make everybody feel really good, but don't actually do anything for the bottom line financial or fiscally for the city. And so, um, you know, that, that was kind of the push that got there. And that, that got me into Strong Towns and reading the book. Um, and then I read it again uh, when my county judge, who we do a lot of work for, and he was our mayor for a long time. Uh, he sits on the Regional Transportation Commission and he was given the book at an RTC meeting. And uh, he called me on his way home and he said, what is this book? And so I had to be ready to answer this question. So I read it a second time. You mentioned that to me, and I, I'm still kind of shocked by that because here, you know, here in North Texas, I know it's been kind of a journey of, you know, for us to that just hearing your your story with Zach Tax and how you got started and the bootstrapping and and then trying to talk about these concepts. And, you know, I was here in North Texas, really all over Texas was, you know, just trying to 
find those city leaders, local leaders that were ready to kind of move, you know, move past business as usual, try to move beyond the the short term win. What, what's the thing that you can do right now and think a little more long term about about our cities and how we're going to pay the bills long term. But the, you know, the, the Regional Transportation Council was just not the place that was having a, a strong towns kind of conversation for, you know, for a long time. It was more, you know, expand, expand, expand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to hear that the conversation is shifting a little bit to be uh, more about maintenance and more about, you know, density and, you know, how is our region as a whole going to handle all of these people that are moving here? We're the biggest region that's not like in the top three or four big regions, you know, we don't have the same public transit system as a Boston or a New York Mm -hmm. or somewhere like that, but we have, our population is heading that way. And so it's going to be interesting to see how our transportation and land use as a region is going to evolve to handle, you know, the more, more people coming here because, you know, we're going to get into infrastructure costs in a minute, but I've had more than a few conversations over at NCT COG, our, our regional MPO here in North Texas about, you know, just the expansion and the infrastructure costs for the inner tier cities and then the second ring cities and then the third ring cities. And then for TxDOT, you know, our regional transportation infrastructure, TxDOT finding the money the money to maintain everything as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big giant fiscal question mark in my in my mind about how we're going to pay for all this stuff in the next 20 years to keep the people that have moved here, you know, here. But the fact that they're having a, you know, passing the strong towns book around at an RTC meeting is a really great place to start and to get the county judges and the county commissioners to you know to talk about this stuff because so much of the transportation money does flow through the MPO and through the through cog so I mean it's a, it's a thought provoking conversation that has to happen at that level uh, you know we we've talked pretty extensively with the MPO with cog um, and the RTC in general about uh, rethinking how we spend our transportation funds. Uh, you know, our, uh, much of our RTC funding is spent on increasing capacity of our interstates and our highways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our, our, we in Parker County specifically, we have a, a privately organized economic development council uh, that's made up of both, uh, both cities and county, but mo- mainly private employers out here. And our focus is, is, is not really to necessarily expand the, the capacity of those those roadways, but to encourage RTC uh, for local employment efforts to to put in uh, projects and development to allow businesses to to locate to this area. Uh, you know wh- whether that be you know some type of satellite from their Fort Worth campus or what that may be, but to localize so that we can reduce the actual amount of miles driven per day uh, locally. Because you know in Parker County, it's a it's a crazy number. And we're exporting all of our jobs and right. some of those jobs are being exported all the way over to, you know, uh, Midlothian. I mean, you know, they're going a long way from manufacturing jobs. So the reality is, is we've got to do a better job as a region of encouraging, not necessarily just widespread regional movement all the time, but some localized small town uh, movement. And uh, the RTC has, it has all the money. The reason it's important that they're talking about strong towns and incremental development is because RTC really is the biggest pool of cash to be able to handle that and uh, and and to make that that change. So that's why it was exciting to me. 
Yeah, it has been for years. For as long as I've lived and worked in North Texas, it's been about expansion, you know, Mm -hmm. adding lanes, widening lanes, (laughs) you know, tollway expansion. But to have the conversation shifting more towards maintenance, more towards, um, you know, bike pad infrastructure, some of those things and figuring out how to distribute that down at the local level to where, you know, put that money in the hands of the different cities and let the cities decide the best way that you can get the best return on investment on that Mm -hmm. money. Right. Um, because every Dallas Fort Worth is a very interesting region in that we have, what, 300 different cities around the region. And every single one of them is they're similar, um, but they're all different, uh, you mm-hmm. know, different, too. So um, and nobody knows better the, the best way to spend that money than than the local leaders you know do. So, Chad, what what were put your city hat back on? You know, when you read through the book and you're thinking about what does this mean? How do we apply this inside a city or how would another city, you know, that, that's looking to do that? What, what are some of the things that jumped out to you? So I, I will bring my city hat, but I will also bring my software development hat to this one. I think the, the, the push for incrementalism is really, really important. Um, you, you mentioned something uh, when you asked a question about, um, you know, when we built Zactax, what did, what did it help us do? What did we see? Mm-hmm. One answer to that is that when we built Zactax, it was maybe... 20% of what it is now. And if we had if we had thought that we had this vision for what Zactax is going to be five years from now and we're going to build it all right now, we would still be working for cities. You know, we, we never would have gotten it done. And truthfully, as we were building it, you know, we questioned the assumptions that we had when we started. Maybe this feature that we thought was going to be really great is mm-hmm. actually not that helpful. So why spend six months building it? Uh, let's just shelve it. Maybe one day it'll be it'll be worthwhile. But let's build this iteratively. Let's build it incrementally and and see what works. If we add this feature and everyone loves it, great. Let's build upon it. If it's something that you know it could, people could care less about, okay, we'll shelve it. We'll try something new. Um, we don't we don't build things incrementally in cities. I mean, you look at neighborhoods that go in, and you've got. I have one that's going on about. 300 yards from my house, right? <laughs> it's like a thousand lots that are all going to go in in two phases over the next you know, four or five years. And it, that's it. It's going to be done. It's never going to be anything other than those houses which are going to age mm-hmm. and, uh, and deteriorate and, and have to be maintained. For me, the incrementalism is, is such an important concept that cities should be taking heed to. Yeah, well, you're you're right. I mean, we those those of us to use the strong towns lingo, we'll talk about the the developments are built all at once to a finished state, you know, and you know, developers will come in, they'll put the infrastructure in. If they're lucky, the economy's good, and they build out all the lots over two, you know, or three years, maybe, you know, and they get out. But you know, then you've got the cities left with the infrastructure, and the the neighborhoods are just very stuck. They're very hard to to transform. I mean, we we've been asked over the years of, of different roadways, you know, thoroughfares, um, older neighborhoods, what you can, what can you do to retrofit these or to, to you know, to modernize them or make them, you know, <laughs> desirable again. And there's just only so much you can do with that kind of development pattern versus, you know, more of the incremental pattern that, um, that strong towns talks about of, you know, the way cities were built for thousands of years before the car w- was invented. But, you know, I do think there's a, there is an opportunity for cities to kind of merge both to have some of that residential style, uh, for some and to have much more of the, you know, the incremental walkable, um, downtown kind of mixed use development that, I think as a region, we're starting to see more demand for as well. 
um, that's one of the challenges I, I see for the, the overall region is we have plenty. I think we have plenty of housing in that kind of built all at once suburban kind of form. Um, we don't have near enough of the other kind of housing that people are going to want to downsize to or that the young professionals are looking for, you know, outside of the big metro areas that are you know really pricey and expensive uh, to do that. So I, I think the smaller communities that are starting to look at that more incremental, smaller development you know, from a housing and from an economic development perspective are going to be going to be in good shape. And especially, I mean, again, kind of, I mean, look at how things are right now and building things smaller, more incrementally is that that's how things are going to happen in the next few years, I think, because uh, the money and the people aren't going to want to take that risk for the for the big stuff yet. So but the challenge, though, also is that y- you can build new things with an eye towards incremental growth, but we also have all of this existing development and uh, the, one of the things that Patrick and I have probably the more heated discussions about on Strong Towns is the idea of the increase of density by right to that next level. Yes. Uh, you know? So <laughs> like, we have this existing stock. All right. So who, who's on which side of the argument I, here? Because I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to bre- break the tie. I, I'm more comfortable with it just from a property rights standpoint. But I, I, see the, <laughs> I see the issues with you know, the zoning and the impact on neighboring properties. I understand all that. But I'm a little bit more permissive when it comes to, to property rights than Patrick is. I, I believe your property right stops when you impact negatively the property right of your neighbor, right? And so that's that's where that increased density argument for me is is tough because uh, you know your your neighbor doesn't really have you know it takes away the the concept of zoning and, and, and from from a standpoint of of protecting the values of the adjacent properties. Yeah, but we, we have a contra example to this, though, in our own experience. We had a, an aging residential neighborhood that was largely just uh, rental. Like there were mm-hmm. a, maybe a couple of owner-occupied properties still on it. And as it started to redevelop, we put a planned district on top of it. So we, when it redeveloped, we knew it was going to look like this, but it's probably not going to happen all at once. And, I mean, what happened to the property values of those houses? Oh, they went up through the roof. They went through the roof as soon as we told people that it could redevelop. You know, well, one, we had a a restaurant that was ready to go in. We had a HEB grocery store that was going to be walkable. We there were some other things that were there that 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 generated that as well. But ultimately, I I think there I think there is room for that. I just think you have to be very careful to say that you're you're automatically approved to go to the next level. Yeah, that's I mean guys in, in our work I mean that that's something that we we find ourselves in the middle of that discussion in every city we're working in mm-hmm. because you can make you can make arguments both both sides I mean I'll take Pasadena Texas down by Houston we're we're working with them right now and they don't have zoning and they have situations where they've got truckers coming and dropping basically dropping rigs and stuff in the middle of residential neighborhoods just mm-hmm. using lots as you know store and storage um you know which is hurting the properties um and then at the same time you you know I get the the view that density could harm, you know, negatively harm property values. And I think some of some of our work though is starting to illuminate that just because you have density doesn't doesn't necessarily hurt your property values. Um, and if it's done well and done right, um, and it can actually boost your property values and quality of life um, too. So, but again, it's every conversation, every community is different, and just navigating. You know, navigating that, navigating that to see kind of where the feel and the, the tolerance is for that um, has been. You know, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, honestly, to just see kind of the different perspectives and and see where you can kind of meet in the middle. Of some neighborhoods are like, you know what, we want it to stay exactly the way it is. Don't don't touch us. 
And then others are starting to see, well, maybe, you know, maybe our neighborhood does need to evolve a little bit to have the revenue to maintain the street and fix the sidewalks and have some more business within walking distance or biking distance or, or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are great examples of this working out very nicely. I mean, uh, I, I like to use Roanoke, Texas as an example, uh, mm-hmm. the Oak street development in Roanoke, uh, which is, you know, the unique dining capital of Texas, as they like to call themselves, uh, <laughs> clever, clever branding clever, on their part, clever branding. And they painted it on a fence. It's actually a really nice mural downtown, but uh, mm-hmm. what, what occurred there is the city went in and they just redeveloped a small, like incrementally redeveloped a very small portion of downtown where a babe's chicken was. And they put a, a twisted root burger on a corner and maybe like two other restaurants. And that's how it all started. Uh, and then from there, the commercial district just kept expanding and behind it where they had acre or two acre uh, residential home sites that were built back in like the sixties and seventies. Uh, those areas have redeveloped into smaller platted, um, you know, residential lots. They're still single family homes, but they're much tighter in density. Uh, and it's, it's been mm-hmm. a nice redevelopment. They've created a really nice walkable atmosphere. They redeveloped those streets in a residential area to make it walkable. So the reality is if you live there, you never get in your car to go out at night. You, you know, you can walk to see live music. You can walk to go work out. You can, I mean, it's just a, it's a very interesting environment in a city that is a suburb. It's not urbanized. It's a suburb. Uh, So it just shows that you can do some of these things in cities like Roanoke, Texas, uh, and and, in places like that and do it successfully. You talked about the next level of zoning by by right. What are are one or two other things from the book that maybe you guys have have kicked around between the two of you that you, you agree with or disagree with? Let's, well, let's go. I mean, any, any things that you, you really do agree with? Let's start there. I like the idea of removing the the sort of uh, professional silos and organizing your teams by geography, at least conceptually. Um, I mean, I, I spent the last five years working in a city where there was really no distinction between those things because it was small enough where we functionally had that system. Um, but that being the case, I can say that it, it worked well for us. I would I'd be really interested to see how some bigger cities have been able to implement that if they have. But just from a conceptual standpoint, I I find that really interesting. Memphis, go look at Memphis. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been chipping away at it for, for a while, but Memphis is one that they're brand new comp. It's not brand new anymore. They're their most, uh, most recent comp plans called Memphis 3.0. And they actually reduced the size of the city. They, They shrunk the size of the city to align with what they had cost to serve. Uh, and then they also looked at structuring structuring teams of their city around how can we improve quality of life in geographic areas of the city. So they combined planning and engineering and public works. And so it wasn't siloed by discipline anymore. It was a group of cross-discipline people that said, your job is to go improve quality of life in this neighborhood or in this neighborhood. And they, they've been at that for for a while, but I think they're they're a great roadmap for a lot of the cities that are that are aging a little bit and looking at how do we really kind of close the resource gap and tackle more with the the staff that we have and the resources that we have um, and especially especially those that that aren't in a place where you can bump your your sales tax a little bit or your uh, not your sales tax your property tax or fees or something like that I mean Memphis had they didn't have that kind of financial flexibility it was just kind of we gotta we gotta do the best we can with what we have think about that though in what you just said in terms of uh, the mission of the employees. So you have a public works department 
Their goal is to build roads. Their goal is to maintain, you know, re- repave things. You have a planning department. Yep. Their goal is to follow these rules. Now, all of a sudden, your goal is to improve the quality of life in this geographic area. And here's your team and you can do it. You, you have the authority to go do that. That's that's empowering. Yeah. You know, every city says they want to be some version of fiscally sustainable, environmentally resilient, socially inclusive, yada, yada. But the daily decisions don't line up with those outcomes. You know, when you when you look at the the investments and the policies and decisions that are being made, you know, and, and when you think about it, I mean, just think about now what we're going through right now, the, the quality of life is measured at the neighborhood level. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's measured in what you do day to day, the local elementary school, the I mean, everything that's close to you. And so I think with cities and I did want to ask you guys this question of I think, you know, on the company side, you know, we're taught and you see of you can have that one critical metric or that one thing that you go do and you can align all of your teams and and your company behind that. We at my former firm, we had 8000 plus people and you would align it at the top. And then those those of us kind of at the the executive level had our part and then it it drilled down through all of the regions and the different um, the different disciplines but it was it was easy to connect it all because we had the one thing on cities i think cities struggle with what is that one thing you know what is the one thing that they're really there to do and i do i think it's quality of life and i think it can be measured with the you know the fiscal sustainability angle of if we don't have if we don't have enough resources to pay for these things then all of the other stuff we talk about doesn't really doesn't really matter. Yeah, I get to say this because, of, you know, as a city manager or a guy who just left city management, the, the problem we have right now within our communities is we talk about all of those things. You know, we talk about doing all of that. But at the end of the day, we don't have the courage within the city management industry to actually do it. We're scared to lose our job. We're scared to be different. We're scared to, uh, to take a large city that as an industry, our prop was always the number of FTEs we have. That's the badge you wear. How many employees do you have, right? We're scared to change that and break down our larger cities into localized neighborhood-driven governmental services, right? And, and that, that really is a cultural change that has to occur from the top and, and move its way down. Do you, um, I, I'm sorry, Patrick, I got to chime in there because that was gold. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I see that too. Our communities need city managers and leaders that are willing to kind of say the past is the past. We've got to look forward. And, you know, how do we, how do we tackle some of these things instead of just talking about them over and over and over? And you, you see comp plans that year after year, they talk about these things, but, but real change doesn't happen. And the excuse is always, well, the, the elected officials won't go there or my council changes or there's not political will to, you know, to implement this. And I mean, in my mind, we've got to push through that. We've got to find the tools. And that's why I was like, so excited to, to meet you guys and learn more about what you're doing is I think data and the tools like both of our organizations are using um, are a big part of moving and moving things forward and giving those managers that are maybe on the fence the, the confidence to kind of take that step, that second step. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the big issue is, is that city managers are, uh, you know, we're taught in grad school. It, it doesn't matter which one you go to uh, for an MPA, but we're taught in grad school to that you're going to go into city management and your job is to provide the best professional advice that you can provide to that city. If it gets you fired, that's okay. You're only supposed to last two and a half or three years. Right. But we don't actually do that. That's the problem is that we walk in there and those policymakers are there 
When I got to Hudson Oaks in 2007, they said, if you build multifamily here, you'll be fired. And two years ago, we started building multifamily in Hudson Oaks. And ultimately, if I would have gotten fired for that, it, it just is what it is. But that was the only way to create our community on a path of sustainability. And, and we needed to, to plan that out. Now, we were blessed to be small that we could, we could really do that with community input and actually get buy-in. Uh, these big cities that try to get buy-in on a large scale, it's just too big. So you have to, as a city manager, be able to trust somebody else at a smaller level of government to do that for you. And that's ultimately where the disconnect happens because you're turning your job, your career over to somebody else that's there. Um, and, and, you know, I just think we have to be better at, you know, giving that authority to people. Uh, one of the things we talked about, and we talked about this on our podcast too, but we talk about how flat the organizations that Chad and I run or like to run are, that every employee we hire, whether it's an admin assistant that's at a front desk taking water bills, or it's an assistant city manager, should be enabled and empowered to make decisions. They should make mm-hmm. a decision, right? And they should be empowered to make that decision every day. And in larger organizations, that just doesn't happen. In, in larger organizations, there are very few people in big cities that make decisions. Um, in fact, when I deal with a lot of big cities, I have a lot of ACM phone numbers on my phone because I know you have to go all the way up to an ACM level to actually get a yes or a no. Um, and, and that's just ultimately it, it, it becomes a the city manager is fearful that they're not going to be able to control the environment at a different level. So therefore, they don't relinquish that control. Um, and, and that's. Hmm. That's why we are where we are from a from a career standpoint. Chad, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, but um, that's that's my feeling. I think it's spot on. I mean, uh, I've never sat in that chair. Uh, I've always been one, you know, one level lower. But the most important thing, I think, if you're going to try to get to that point, is that you have to, as as the manager, uh, you have to set the culture, and then like your job is basically just enforcing that culture. I mean. We joke about, you know, putting money in the on the bin when we hear Patrick say the same things over and over again. But when he has his spiels, we know what he's going to say. We know what the message of the organization was. Right. Um, and if that's not being transmitted all the way down, then, yeah, how can you trust someone to make a decision? Um, so part of your job as a manager in an organization that is designed to let people make decisions is to convey why you would have made a particular decision and what are the values that you hold and that you're trying to instill so that they can actually use those to determine what decision is the right one to make. I mean, you can't right. just leave them up, you know, leave it up to them and and then they make a decision that you disagree with and all of a sudden now they're, you know, they're in trouble, they're getting fired, they're getting reprimanded. It's a it's an education process, not just a, a delegation. Yeah. And so AJ, that that works with me now, she she spent the first 15 plus years of her career in, in planning departments for different cities. Um, and so really getting to work with her over the last year, year or so now and hearing her version of some of this stuff as a planning director that was sometimes empowered and sometimes not or. Um, you know, just just staff in general, some of the just the apathy that starts to form over time when when you're not empowered to make those decisions or when you are or you think you are and you make the decision you make, you know, and then it goes to council and somebody you know cuts you off or changes it. So I do think that culture inside local government is it's an important one that I think does need to be improved. And 
you know, it's exciting that so, there's some organizations now that I think are, are really starting to tackle that with some of the up and comers of, you know, the ELGLs out there and you, you know, others, I, I know, um, Brittany, you know, Huff, who I think, you know, worked for you, you know, reached out to me a while back and that was the first time I'd ever heard of UMAMP before, but mm-hmm. there's more organizations like that. I think that are starting to look at the the next level of leaders in cities and, you know, the, the manager position, especially just that requires a lot of cross training. You know, you got to know a lot of things about a lot of things, I think, to do that job well. But the if we can give our younger, you know, younger folks the opportunity to kind of dip their toe into those things sooner, you know, then the the more prepared they're going to be to sit in that chair. <laughs> yeah, you know, and 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 I, I want to talk, you know, a lot about what Chad said there about the culture and things like that. Um, it's also very important that uh, city managers don't manipulate a situation, right? We're not we're not there to put our will in the community. We're there to to inform the community and get consent at the end of the day. That's that's what we're there to do. Um, and in Hudson Oaks, we, we like to say that we puke honesty when people ask us a question. I I think a lot of my residents (laughs) really hated asking me questions because I didn't have a yes or no answer that, that was, that was never it. I would, I would tell them every in and out of why we made a decision. Yes, we did this, but this is why we did it. And this was the other side of the equation of why we did it. And I mean, those poor residents had to listen to me for 25 minutes for a very simple question about why is my trash bill $14.82 a month? And and I'd give them the full rundown of, you know, disposal costs and everything else. And by the time they were, done, <laughs> they were just well-informed, but very bored. <laughs> so was was that like one of the core values in Hudson Oaks is say puke honesty? Was uh, it up on the wall? My, those, those employees to this day would still, we didn't write it on a wall. Uh, I've actually, uh, my, my old mayor, who's now a county judge, I've heard him say that uh, through this COVID stuff, uh, you know, really, he's been extremely engaged on social media, which I think has been very uncomfortable for a lot of folks in Parker County, because not, uh, not every city was as engaged on social media as Hudson Oaks was. Um, but he's, I've heard him say four or five times when somebody says, you just really need to calm down with your social media presence. And, and he'd say, look, I'm just going to puke honesty. These people, they need to know the truth, the information we're getting, and I'm going to puke that information out to them. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was cultural. And, um, you, you know, I, I think – and we were just very transparent what we're doing. Shout out to Brittany Huff. We hired Brittany as an assistant too and flat out said, you know, we're hiring you as an assistant too. Like I was hired, you know, 14 years ago as an assistant too to be the future of where this city's going to go. And 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 we want you to, to you know, work hard and – uh, learn the community and become a part of it so that you can lead it into its next generation at some point. Um, and, and she will one day, she'll probably be the city manager of Hudson Oaks one day. There's, there's probably no doubt uh, as long as she stays on that track. And uh, we were able to get another great manager. That was the hardest thing in Hudson Oaks, you know, Chad left and then I left and, and I really thought I was going to be able to give him another year of time. But the toughest thing was finding a, a, a new city manager that saw eye to eye uh, with, with what, what the community had done and where they had gone. Cause you tell a city manager, Hey, I want you to come manage a city without a property tax. The eyes just get really big, right? Like, <laughs> without a property tax. Uh, but we found three great candidates through that process of recruitment, you know, well over a year of talking to people. Uh, and, and we landed on a really good manager of Sterling Naren who came out of Westworth village. So, uh, you know, super excited to, to be able to transition out of that and, and be able to live in a city, like Hudson Oaks, like I still do today, 
and uh, be able to enjoy the the fruits of all that hard work that staff and that city council has done over the years. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get towards wrapping up here, but I, I did want to ask you guys when I first reached out to you, I was um, I was speaking at a TML Texas Municipal League event. And after it, I, you know, I had folks coming up talking to me about our, you know, our fiscal analysis work and fiscally based planning and, and some of that. And um, one of the guys was like, you really need to talk with, with Patrick from Zach Tax. And I'm like, who? <laughs> you know, is Zach Tax what? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I reached out to you guys and, um, you know, come to find out you you were aware of our work and, and what we're doing. So I, I guess, you know, I'd like to ask you guys what your opinion of the stuff that we're doing is and how, in your words, maybe how you think it is applicable to cities out there. And then the last thing I want to get into is what, what we're talking about is just as far as some of the partnering and, and opportunities we think there are for, for Verdunity and, and Zach Tax to, to start to help some cities together. Well, I can say that, uh, you know, you reached out to Patrick uh, on LinkedIn a couple months ago. We had been talking for probably six months about, okay, Patrick, when do you leave? <laughs> we got to reach out to Verdunity. Uh, so I appreciate you kind of short circuiting that process. <laughs> um, but no, we, we've been big fans. We've been following uh, the, the blog and just the work that you guys have been doing. And it's so refreshing to see an engineer and a planning consultant that's coming at it from a strong town's perspective. I mean, whether or not you agree with a hundred percent of strong town's message, just a different perspective is so important. One of the things that we did in Hudson Oaks is we never had, we, we, we never had one engineering firm do more than one project at a time. Right. So we, we had like five projects going on at once. We had five different firms. And is that difficult to keep track of? Yeah. Because you have so many contacts and so many meetings and you can't double up on anything, but it also keeps all those ideas fresh. Uh, and it keeps everyone hungry because, you know, mm -hmm. they're not just satisfied by having all of your contracts. Um, so, yeah, having a new voice uh, in the in the mix and pre pre presenting a different mindset, I just think is so important for not just Texas cities, but cities across the country. Yeah, you guys have been an incredible disruptor in the field, right? Um, you know, it, there, uh, you know I, I won't throw them out on your podcast, but I've had many a president and CEO of large engineering firms ask me about, you know, fiscal analysis and what does that mean and how should our comp plans be changing? And, um, you know, and, and much like the field that Chad and I are in with, uh, you know, with revenue analytics, um, some of the older firms are just they're just too big, too heavy, too large. They're the aircraft carrier and you guys are the speedboat. Right. Um, and you're fresh and you've got some great ideas and, you know, you're not, you're not old school from a standpoint of, Hey, I need a road. And that road gets more expensive because my fee is all about percentage. That's, that's the point that I've always made to folks in, in that world, you know, in Texas, like we can't ask you for a price, right? It's just one of those mm -hmm. goofy rules that we have. We can't allow engineering firms to compete with each other based on price. It's only based on qualifications, uh, but what that really does is it kind of sets a, a percentage value of jobs that each city looks at and says, well, you know, if the cost of engineering and construction engineering goes above 9%, then I'll start asking questions. Well, what we don't realize is that job that may only need to be a two lane road becomes a three or four lane road. And it pushes up the cost of engineering substantially because of that. Uh, right. And, and you guys are going in there and saying, wow, we're not even talking about building you a new road. We're talking about just improving the livability of the roads you already have in generating an actual profitability for the city in the long run by doing that. Uh, and it's, it's so far outside of the norm 
uh, you're not only disrupting from a from a price <laughs> standpoint, but you're just disrupting the ideas uh, that are there. And I think it's a it's a super healthy conversation to have. And I think you guys will be a change leader on that. There's there's no doubt uh, that we're going to see that. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that. That's um, something kind of back to the culture thing. Every every person that we've hired and talked with, you know, the the conversation I have is we are we are driven by changing the way our cities are, are working and, and also to a, you know, an additional extent, the, the way planning and engineering approaches the fields, right? I mean, the, the way that work is done right now discourages innovation. Like you just said, Patrick, it rewards bumping up the cost of the projects mm-hmm. as opposed to saving our clients money. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the challenging part there for, for us is still the finding the right way to get, you know, some of those things, paid for when we are crossing to Chad, to your point, you know, we're crossing silos. We're bringing those silos back together of we're outside of public works or engineering or planning. And what we're finding is we find our way up to those decision makers that you just mentioned about. We're we're up there with the ACM and the CM and the council. Um, And, and it is, it's hard work to get there, but, but man, once we, once the light bulbs go off, it's so much fun. I mean, it's, it's because you, you start to see things open up to all the things that, that can be done, um, and you have a more, you know, more productive conversation instead of just the, you know, we can't or we'll just, we can't do those kind of things. So let me wrap up with just what's next for Zach tax. What do things look like for you guys in the, let's in the weeks ahead as we're looking at COVID and sales tax plummeting. And then a little bit after that. Well, we've done, uh, we've done several COVID related sales tax analyses. Um, in, in some cases it's, it's kind of ugly, but you know, the numbers are what they are. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we're looking to do uh, some forecasting for the coming fiscal year, which is going to present quite a few challenges just with, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the, over the next 12 months. Are we <laughs> going to have a resurgence? Uh, are things going to kind of slow down? Are we going to have some kind of miracle cure? Uh, just so many variables that, that uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be difficult, but uh, you know, we're here to help people. What do the wise guys at Zach Tax present? You know, what, what are you? We're looking at doing... Uh, multiple different forecasts based on different universes that might exist. Um, we, we, we typically operate with a probability forecast. And um, when, when you have such a wide disparity in the possible outcomes, uh, just doing a single forecast isn't all that useful. So we're kind of breaking these scenarios down into different different worlds that could exist and looking at them within those, those parameters. Um, and then, you know, the cities will be able to determine what world they feel most comfortable with when they set their budgets for next year. Can I ask you just a question on that? You know, in, in Texas, we changed it up with the, the online sales tax. I mean, how is that impacting some of these cities and especially with COVID? Like, how does that, how's that impact a city like the guys in fate? I was just talking with Justin the other day and, and Michael Kovacs, they've been on here several times. They're good, good friends of ours. And Michael was telling me that, you know, the, the Amazon shopping was actually a very good thing for their, for their sales tax that they weren't getting before. Yeah. So Amazon uh, obviously has done well. There is a new, uh, there's a new portion of Amazon sales tax revenue, which comes from their third party sales that didn't start until maybe four or five months ago. So it's tough to tell if that went up or down because we don't have any baseline data from prior year. Um, but that's, that's a new sales tax generator. So it's certainly can't hurt as cities are going through this. Um, as of today, we only actually have one month's worth of sales tax data that is within the closure time period. And it was only uh, the two-week closure in March. 
Um, so the, the data is a little bit hit or miss. That's also the month where you have quarterly taxpayers that remit. So it's, it's very noisy right now. We're trying to look at like maybe a full 10, 12, 16 week window to, to really assess the true impact of it. Yeah. And April, let's be clear, uh, when we get data in June, which will be for April sales, we fully expect that to be, uh, terrible. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know <laughs> what, what descriptor to use for that, but it's not going to be pretty. We expect it to be really bad. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what that number finally comes in at. Um, but I mean, most of our clients, I will say this, one of the things we've done is we've told all of our clients to take a deep breath. Um, there were a lot of cities that, that got very active in what I would consider like some 2008, 2009 cost cutting uh, moves and making some very long-term decisions in, in what we don't know yet to be a, a long-term crisis or what that impact on sales tax is going to be. And, and so we, we just have really talked to our clients one-on-one about caution, hold on, let's look at it, let's get you some real data just take it one piece at a time and don't, don't freak out. And, you know, once, once you have that conversation with the decision makers, the finance directors, the ACMs, the CMs, um, you know, they, everybody kind of calms down and everybody figures out, okay, we can handle that loss for three or four months. And then as things start to bounce back, we'll be good. The thing about Texas is we were blessed to be fairly positive anyways. Um, and and I, I think we'll be okay. There are some cities out there that will be, they won't even see a blip. They're very few and far between, but they're well diversified when it comes to sales tax and they're not going to see much of a blip. And there are some cities out there that, you know, they're very dependent on entertainment, things like that. that those are going to get hit a little harder. And so um, we'll we're going to continue to work in a very incremental fashion with sales tax and and work with our clients to get that data in front of them. But for us, it's just more about giving them the tools to make their decisions and make those decisions wisely. Um, and, and we think. You know, our clients have done a pretty tremendous job up to this point as, as we walk through it. I haven't had anybody I had to call to say, hey, what were you doing? Like, what were you thinking on that one? None of our clients. I, I've had to call a couple of cities to ask that question. But so, so well, let's bring this full circle. How's, how's Hudson Oaks doing with no property tax and sales tax being questionable? So they were very positive last month. I think they were 15 percent up. Uh, and there were obviously 14 days in March where everybody was on a stay at home order. Uh, but once again, Hudson Oaks is extremely diversified uh, yep. when it comes to sales tax. And so we've got a little bit of internal bet in Hudson Oaks right now on, on where next month is going to be. I think we're going to be slightly above flat. Yep. For, you always for take the over. I always take the over. <laughs> I always take the over. I'm always Chad, the- I have a feeling I'm in your court on this one too, man. <laughs> which is funny because in my, in my organization, I'm the optimist one. <laughs> But we're going to see some cities out there that are 30, 40, 50% down. Like that's, that's going to happen. So, right. Uh, but May is going to be better than I think we expected in most of the analyses that we've done up to this point. Uh, things have, have opened a little bit quicker. Um, you know, they've, they've figured it out. It's amazing what American ingenuity does. You know, restaurants figuring out to go business, you know, they've been losing 50% of their business and, they were able to get that to a 20% loss just by being better at to go, you know, things like that. We're, we're starting to see that. Uh, and, you know, frankly, in, in, in our state, there are some good signs. You know, unemployment in Texas has is, is dropped drastically. The week over week unemployment has dropped drastically. Uh, you know, at one point, I think we were losing about 380,000 jobs a week and we're down into lower 100,000s or so. I think it was like 135 oh. last week. So, you know, there are some good signs. 
Uh, I like to look at solid waste numbers and we're doing an analysis for a larger cities. And I like to look at solid waste tonnage and we, we've actually seen an uptick in the, in the May solid waste numbers in some of those communities that shows me that people are starting to dispose of more things, which means they're buying more stuff. And so uh, we're starting to see a little bit of a loosening up on the consumer wallet as well. All right, cities, there, there's your lead in indicator. Go watch your trash. I was actually taught that by Robert Hanna. I've got to give him props on that one, but I've used it for years. Well, let's uh, let's start, wrap up. Where um, where can folks learn more about you guys and, and Zach Tax? Yeah, so the website is zachtax.com, Z-A-C-T-A-X. Uh, our blog is up there, information about our sales tax platform. Uh, the podcast is Cast. So Z-A-C-C-A-S-T dot com. There's also a link there on the website. Um, we are not quite as active as you guys. Uh, just started to kind of figure out a routine. but uh, On what? On the podcast stuff? Yeah, yeah. on the podcasting. It, it's, it was difficult at first because Patrick still had a full-time job you know, with the city. And then we had all the COVID stuff. So we were kind of yeah. busy. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're getting a routine and, and starting to, uh, to have a lot of fun with that too. Sweet. All right, guys, I appreciate you jumping on and we'll get all your good info in the in the show notes and we will chat with you guys real soon. Awesome. Yeah, we hope to have you on our on our Zetcast soon too, Kevin. Yeah, I'll get on anytime. I like doing this stuff. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it, man. All right, guys. Listen here, boy, don't start no fuss. Stop the women selling us up because it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They got sales tax on it, or it's the same thing. Some sell it high, some sell it low. It's done gone bad and they can't sell no more, cause it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They got sales tax on it, cause it's the same thing. Thank you.